Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Did you know that doing the right thing still matters? Morality still matters. Purity still matters. Holiness still matters. Did you know today that the morality of every single member of this church matters and that everybody in the church should be concerned about the morality of every other person? I remember reading a story earlier this week about a journalist named Sebastian Younger. Mr. Younger spent 15 months embedded with the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, and he wrote a book about his time with the Army and a book entitled War. In the book, he makes this statement. He said, because the margins were so razor thin, there were so many opportunities for little mistakes to cause great casualties. Every member of the platoon had the responsibility to call out anyone who was doing anything that wasn't right. He talks about if a soldier didn't clean his weapon properly, he would be called out. If a soldier didn't drink enough water, he would be called out. If a soldier didn't even tie his bootlaces properly, he would be called out. He talks about in his book the story about one soldier who had left his boots not properly tied, and another soldier confronted him and made him tie his boots properly. He says, you may wonder why. He says, because attacks in Afghanistan often came without warning and very suddenly. If in the heat of an attack, a soldier lost his footing because his bootlaces were untied, or if he tripped and stumbled, or maybe even stumbled and caused somebody else to trip, it could cost him or them their lives. Beloved, can I just tell you this morning that we're on a battlefield and the margins are razor thin. What happens to one of us to a great degree affects all of us. We are responsible and accountable for each other. As my preaching professor, Dr. Stephen Rummage, once said, he said, church, you are not an audience. You are an army. So how do you respond? how How should we respond? Like that soldier, when... When something isn't right with someone else, what should we do? How do we call them out, if you will? This morning, specifically, our text brings us to the topic of immorality, and specifically, sexual immorality in the body. If you're our guest here this morning, know that we're just in the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm not just, this is not a subject that I would have chosen. I'm so thankful that the book chooses me. And that preaching through the Bible verse by verse protects me from just saying things that I normally wouldn't say. Amen. But we continue this morning in our study in 1 Corinthians. And this morning we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to see from our text three responses to immorality. Three responses to immorality. So I wonder again if you would stand as we read from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word which will not return void. Amen. 
it will accomplish the thing that it's been sent for. Amen? God is speaking. The Bible says this. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, Paul, what's the therefore? Therefore. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Well, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You may be seated, and may God bless his word. Now listen, I know that you guys know about the antiques and all that kind of stuff up at Round Top. I'm sure you could go out to Round Top, and you could look through all their antiques and find some stuff for your home, and I'm sure you would come across some things from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, you would find love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You would find 1 Corinthians stuff out there because I've seen it myself. But here's something I'm pretty sure you're not going to find. You're not going to find anything with a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on it. But here's my point. Everything in 1 Corinthians 5 is just as necessary as everything in 1 Corinthians 13. We have to pay attention to what Paul is saying. It's just as needed, it's just as viable in the church. So what are those responses to immorality? Well, here's the first one. We must respond to immorality with real distress. Instead of being in distress, they're delighting in it. Paul says this should not be the case. He says, first he says, we should not be accepting of immorality. We've got to have real distress over it. We just shouldn't accept it. In verse 1, he says that it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. Well, that's interesting. That word actually means commonly. In other words, it's a, it's a common thing in your church. In other words, this is out in the open. This is not hidden. This isn't a secret. 
Well, Paul, what's so common? I mean, what's going on? What's, what continues to happen? He says there is immorality. Now, that word immorality there is the Greek word porneia. I do not have to tell you what English word we get from that. This word refers to any kind of sexual immorality. It's not just limited to adultery. It's not just limited to fornication. It's not just limited to things like lust. It refers to any kind of immorality. But he says, in this case, it's one of the most sickening kinds because he's here talking about incest. A man has been with his father's wife. This is most likely a reference to his stepmother. Paul says that that this is something that someone has his father's wife. In the Greek, that is in the present tense. In other words, this means it's not only been happening in the past, but it's continuing to happen in the present. It's been tolerated in the church, and now it's become acceptable in the church. We must not be accepting of any kind of immorality. Paul says, not even the Gentiles do this kind of stuff. This is not something that even exists among those who don't really go to church. So he's saying if Gentiles who don't even know the Lord and don't have his word, if they don't even accept that, what in the world are you doing accepting it? It's not like they didn't know, though, that this wasn't right. They can't claim ignorance because in verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul's dealt with this stuff in his previous letter, and Paul's just reminding them of what the Old Testament had previously taught. Leviticus 18, verses 7 and 8 say it this way, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, and you're not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, if it is your father's nakedness. Sexual immorality, can I just say it clearly, cannot be tolerated or accepted in any body of Christ or in any part of the world, period. And Paul says, not only should we not accept it, he says we shouldn't be arrogant with immorality. Verse 2, he says, you've become arrogant and you haven't mourned. This is a familiar word again. We've seen this word pop up. It's the same word. It means to puff up. In other words, they've, begin, they've got puffed up about this. This is something that is said time and time again about the Corinthians. Nothing seems to break through their pride and their boasting. They weren't just puffed up about this man's sin which is sick enough, they were puffed up as a church. They were accepting of this man's sin. But how could they be so prideful or arrogant about this sin? Well, we can only speculate here, but maybe they were so protective of their reputation as a church that they just didn't want to deal with it because it would get negative publicity. It may cause some collateral damage, so we better just keep this one under wraps. It may get really messy. Maybe they were so open-minded about their freedom in Christ, they just assumed God's grace will cover this one. Maybe they were proud because they were accepting of people like this, even when other churches weren't. Their church was an open door to all kinds of sexual immorality. And boy, do we see that today. Maybe the man was a prominent man, and they were proud to have him in their church. Maybe it could be that he was a very wealthy man, and they didn't want to lose what he could give to the church, no matter Paul rebukes them for their arrogance. There's a tendency to be proud of our toleration of sin. If you don't believe that, what do you think this month is called? 
Again, beware what you tolerate, because once you tolerate it, you will accept it, and what you accept, you'll begin to celebrate. That's why this month, in some circles, is called Pride Month. It's not, it's not news that we would be arrogant about this stuff. The Bible is very clear, very applicable, that all sexual matter, we shouldn't accept it, but then we shouldn't even be arrogant about it. Rather than being acceptable or arrogant, there is a response that is necessary, and that is, thirdly, Paul says, we should be mournful over immorality. Paul says we should be mourning, broken, distressed. Not only of the sin in our church, but in our lives and in our nation. And it's interesting because that word mourn there in the text, he says instead, you should not, you haven't mourned. That, that word mourn is the, the word that's used when somebody has lost a very dearly beloved one and they're in the agonies of pain over that one. It's not just the average word for mourn. It is the deep agony of loss of a, one who has passed away. He's saying that that's the kind of agony with which we should mourn over this sin. Not just being concerned about it. It's being so distressed over it that we weep over it. In other words, what Paul is saying in some ways is that this is deadly serious. Beloved, when we are no longer shocked by sin, we will accept it. When we're not broken over it, when we're not mourning over our sin, we lose one of God's strongest defenses against sin. And it's deadly dangerous. Ephesians 5, 3 says this, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Verse 11, he says, don't participate in useless deeds of darkness, but rather what? Expose them. This is not something that should be accepted or even named among us. We're to mourn over it and then get rid of it. James 4, 8, and 9 says this, come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and what, church? Mourn and weep. Let your laughter, your arrogance, be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. We must respond to immorality with real distress. Then Paul says we must respond to immorality with redemptive discipline. With redemptive discipline. Please note that before we can properly exercise any type of discipline in the church, you must be distressed over it first. If our hearts are not broken and our hearts are not effective, we will not be in the proper place to discipline anyone. Paul says that he's already made a decision, verse 3. For on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. While he wasn't physically there, he was still there in spirit. He could still exercise his apostolic authority. Paul knew what was going on. It had been reported to him, so he was still there in spirit. And Paul has already made a decision. He's already decided what must be done. He's made a judgment. Well, what is it? It's a little different from what they were doing. After all, when this man came to church, people would greet him. They would welcome him. Everyone would just kind of pretend that his sin doesn't exist. They would invite him to lunch afterwards. Then they would just go on like everything was okay. But what does Paul tell them to do? Well, in verse 2, he says that this deed, he would be removed from your midst. But then verse 4, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you, with the power of the Lord, 
deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, in other words, when you come together to worship, to please Jesus, you know what my decision is as your leader. When you're assembled, you come together in the authority given the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you should be doing. In other words, you know what Christ's will and word says about this matter, and you should do exactly what Christ would do if he were there. The Lord has left the local congregation responsible for church discipline. It's in his name, acting in his power. We will look at what Jesus said to do in just a minute, but for now, know that when a church makes a decision to discipline somebody over that kind of immorality or later some other sins, know that when we do that, we're making a decision that's in accordance with heaven because a church that's in harmony with heaven, when she's in harmony with heaven when she deals properly with sin. Paul says something interesting, and it seems so unloving, deliver him over to Satan. Deliver is a strong term indicating a judicial act of sentencing, handing somebody over to punishment. In other words, this one should lose his rights to participate in the church. His sentence is that he's given over to Satan. Paul's saying, listen, quit making excuses. Quit allowing this one not to feel the weight of his sin. Turn him back over to the, to the world of Satan where he's the prince and the ruler of this hour. In other words, this is going to remove the protective nature of fellowship and the protective hand of God over his life. You're saying, well, that seems so strong. Well, Paul has done this before. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he says, Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Why? Well, he says we do this for the destruction of the flesh. Destruction can refer to death. It's used in this sense in judgment on sin. You have to understand that Satan has no power over the spirit of a believer. Satan attacked Job only physically. He could only destroy Job's possessions and Job's body. He could not destroy Job's soul. So what Paul is saying is that this man now, because you're to turn him over for the destruction of his flesh, he could very well lose his life. He could get very sick. He could suffer immensely. Because when we turn someone over to Satan, we're removing the protective hand of God and the protective nature of fellowship, and they should feel that. If he doesn't repent, Paul says, his life could end very quickly. He'll still go to heaven, but he won't go when he should have. Paul's saying some very strong stuff here. i got to admit, it, this is strong. So why do this? He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, his soul is saved and he's going to heaven, but this will hopefully turn him back in repentance. As one commentator said, the ultimate reason for this excommunication and the turning over to Satan was not to have sadistic glee over a brother who has fallen, but to see this brother's spirit saved on judgment day at the second coming of Christ, hopefully being put into Satan's kingdom and through negative experiences in that kingdom, he will see the need for true repentance and confession of his sin so that he then can turn and be restored to fellowship with Christ and the local church. 
Paul wanted to see this man demonstrating the reality of his salvation so that on judgment day, he could be accepted by Christ. Beloved, you need to know this, that discipline is never meant to harm. It's only meant to help. It is never combative, mean, or hateful. But can I tell you this? It's also never optional. It's never optional. God has called the church to do this. If we don't respond with redemptive discipline, we hurt the church and we hurt the person because we are telling them they're spiritually okay when they're not. For many, the topic of church discipline seems so inconsistent with love. But can I tell you, discipline is not inconsistent with love. It's actually the opposite. A lack of discipline is inconsistent with love. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and punishes every son whom he accepts. Too many times in church, we say things like this when it comes to disciplining somebody. Oh, we can't do that. That's not the loving thing to do. That's not the Christ-like thing to do. Or he's my friend and I really care about him. I'm going to stand behind him even though I know he's wrong. He's, he's such a godly person. We can't do that to him. Well, the Bible, which is the authority over our feelings, over our friendships, and over our faith, says something very different. Paul says that we do this in the name of Jesus and with the power of the Lord. So let's kind of break that open just a minute. First of all, that would mean that redemptive discipline involves personal reflection. He's already told us there that we should mourn. Our hearts should be effective. Jesus taught that before exercising discipline of any kind, he taught us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, he says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you're not right first, you will be ineffective to help somebody else. It's so easy for us to see when somebody else has sinned. I have 20-20 vision about other people's sin. First, we must do some personal reflection and deal with our own sin. But yet, we still can't say, well, we all have sinned, so who am I to bring this up? The Bible doesn't give you that out. The Bible says, no, you deal with your own sin, and then you go. It's never that we don't go. It's that we have to deal with our sin, and then we still go to deal with others. So we have to really look at some personal reflection. But then redemptive discipline involves proper resolution, a proper resolution. He says to do this in Jesus' name, and that means something. To do something in Jesus' name means that we would do it in the way that Jesus taught it, said it, or did it. So then what did Jesus teach, say, or do? Well, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, inform us. He says, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Step one. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take step two. Take one or two or more with you so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, step three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, 
He is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Jesus is saying this, that the proper resolution is always repentance. If that's not the resolution, then we have to do this. Redemptive discipline involves a painful removal. If repentance is not reached, Jesus said, remove them from your midst, just like Paul did. To treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector means that you try to help them, but they can no longer be a part of the fellowship like they once were. Paul said in verse 2, to remove them from your midst. He also has said to deliver them over to Satan. In verse 9, he says not to associate with them. Then he says in verse 11, not to eat with them. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but for now, know that what the Lord teaches is that sometimes people care more about their friendships than they do about being faithful to the Word of God. This is a very hard and very difficult thing, and it is supposed to hurt like crazy. It is never easy, but it is necessary in the kingdom of God and in the church of God. And then prayer, redemptive discipline also involves prayerful resilience because we must continue to pray and seek restoration and repentance. The Bible says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to himself so that you are not tempted as well. So when they get caught, we should try to restore them. But as we do, we must understand our own vulnerability. Listen, church, listen to me very carefully. Restoration of sin can never begin as long as we tolerate it. We can never restore somebody who's been in sin as long as somebody in the church is tolerating it. We all have to agree or it doesn't work. And we all should be prayerful and do this in a spirit of gentleness. That's what's happening. They wouldn't address this. Therefore, the man couldn't feel the weight of his sin, and therefore he couldn't repent. I'll say a little more about this in a moment, but know now that when we're trying to restore them, this is not a time of eating and doing life together and acting as if things are okay. That's not what the Scripture says. We must respond to immorality with real distress, redemptive discipline, and thirdly, we must respond to immorality with renewed dignity. Renewed dignity. Here in 1 Corinthians, the church had lost its witness. Even the Gentiles don't do what they were doing. There must be a return to purity of holiness and dignity. And how do we do that? Well, Paul says we can prioritize cleansing. We can prioritize cleansing. Discipline and cleansing have to be severe because the consequences of not doing it are much worse. Not dealt with, sin and immorality spread to everyone else. Verses 6 through 8, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, <laughs> leaven's the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as, in fact, you are unleavened. For Christ has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul makes a comparison between getting rid of sin and getting rid of leaven. He mentions the Passover and celebrating the feast. It'd be helpful for you to know that as Paul is writing the book of 1 Corinthians, Passover is approaching. It's very fresh on his mind. He says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This calls to mind when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. 
And the Lord was pouring out the ten plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the last plague would be the death of the firstborn. God said a death angel is going to pass through. And the death angel would take the life of the firstborn unless he saw blood on doorposts. So they took an unblemished lamb, a lamb without any type of demarcations in it, any type of marks, any type of infirmities. They would take a pure, holy, spotless lamb. They would kill it. And they would take its blood and put it over the doorposts of their homes. They would now be under the blood. The death angel would come and he would pass over every home that had the blood applied. Thus, at a Passover meal, it's in honor of this event. They would celebrate by eating things that had been dealt with through the blood, namely sin. Leaven represents sin in the Bible. So before Passover, for an entire week, they would meticulously go through their homes and look for any possible fragments of leaven. They would clean out the pantry. They would scrub the floor. They would take anything they could and go through every single crack of their home to find any possible trace of leaven. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, a sinless, spotless, unblemished lamb, was sacrificed for our sin. He's saying we can't now live with sin in our own homes, much less in the church of God. We must get rid of the leaven. Leaven is robust, and it can last a really long time, and it really has strong powers to it. He says, don't you know that just a little bit can affect the whole thing? A little bit of sin in this church will affect all of us. We have to prioritize cleansing. We have to prioritize dignity in the church. It doesn't take much sin to destroy any church. A little bit can multiply and can spread from family to family. So he says, clean out the old leaven that you may live as new creations that you are. We're not to live with sin in our lives. He says, we must clean out the leaven. That, that word clean there means to purge, to cleanse thoroughly. We must prioritize being holy and living clean before the Lord. We must continually be cleansing our lives of any and all sin. We must make it a priority to look through our lives daily for any and all sin and do the hard work of removing it. He says, let's not celebrate by having sin in our lives. When we come together, let's just not tolerate this stuff. Verse 8, it says something interesting there. It says, don't celebrate with, with malice or wickedness. Malice is the... Simple word for evil. Wickedness is the most despicable form of evil. He says, let's cleanse ourselves of this. How? He says, let's do it with sincerity and truth. It's interesting that that word sincerity has some, some really cool background to it. That word sincerity is made up of two words. The word sincerity is made up of one word that means to judge, and the other word is sunshine. That's interesting. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we are to cleanse ourselves by judging everything that we do in the sunshine. What is the sunshine? It's the truth of God's word. It's the light of God's word. It's the unfiltered, uncontained bright as you possibly can be, the Word of God. This is none other than we take everything that we're doing and we hold it up to the light of God's Word. And we allow God's Word to show us where the leaven is 
and then we're able to remove it. This is what repentant dignity looks like. We have to prioritize cleansing by going back to what God says. But then we also can protect community. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you earlier not to associate with immoral people. I'm not talking about, Paul says, all those out there in the world doing this stuff. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Now watch, now he moves from just sexual immorality to other things. If he is an immoral person, if he's covetous, if he's an idolater, it's interesting that word reviler means slanderer. If he's a drunkard, if he's a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He had written them previously and told them to remove immoral persons from the body and not to associate with them. Listen, church, I know this is hard, but I'm just telling you what God's word says. When somebody's like that in the church, the Bible says we're not even to associate with them. That word associate means to mix up with, to keep close, intimate company with. Those who call themselves believers, who are unrepentant in their sin, after church discipline, are not to be allowed in the activities of the church to come to classes, studies, social events, leadership, participate in the Lord's Supper, hang out with other people after church or before church or even not even around church. We are not to be with them anywhere. The pain of that kind of discipline is meant to drive them to repentance. We're not to allow them to be around because sin like leaven spreads, and before you know it, now you take their side, and now you're tolerating of the very thing that they were disciplined over. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will affect us all, so we have to protect the community. As a side note, it does not mean that we avoid all contact, but that it means we avoid intimate contact. When we approach them, we call them to repentance, and we call them to restoration. We aren't calling them for a sandwich. Notice that Paul says we're not to avoid contact with those who are immoral outside the church. We're supposed to be involved in the lives of those who don't know Christ who are just as immoral as the day is long. Jesus was a friend of sinners and with tax collectors and prostitutes and the like. But turning back to those inside the church, those who are Christ followers, he includes not only those who are sexually immoral, but those who are covetous and idolaters. In other words, those people who put things in front of the Lord slanderers, drunkards, those who take things that don't belong to them or try to talk people out of things. He says these activities, these sins are just as necessary for the church to go into discipline over because those sins will also affect the church, so we have to protect the community. Those sins will be readily available to a watching world to see. The church must be seen as a holy place because we reflect the holy God. Then he says, for the one who is a so-called brother. Now, that's interesting. Because those who after church discipline won't repent probably prove that they really weren't a believer. You cannot go on habitually sinning in the Lord and have the Holy Spirit inside of you. For those who are immoral, we're not to eat with such a one. That means to withhold fellowship. Probably most likely it also means to withhold the Lord's Supper from them. Listen, can I tell you that a boat in the water is a good thing? But when water gets in the boat, that's a bad thing. We're supposed to be in the world. The world's not supposed to be in us. 
we got to do a better job getting the water out of the boat. So then he says, thirdly, we just have to perform the command. We just have to perform the command. I mean, I think it's interesting. Right after he says, you've got to protect the community, he says the way that you do that is you just perform the command. Well, what is the command? Again, I'm not trying to be harder than Paul is, but, but in verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 13, Paul says these words. Verse 13 says it in bold. It's a reference to the Old Testament. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. God says he judges those outside the church, but we are to judge and perform discipline on those inside the church. That's his command. We are to purge not just evil. Notice he didn't say remove the evil man. Remember? This is not the word for malice. This is that word I told you, which is the highest form. Purge the wicked man. People who are just in sin are not just, well, you know, they just got, the, the Bible would describe that as wickedness. I don't think we take sin as seriously as God does. God takes sin so seriously. He said in Deuteronomy 17.7, he said this. Deuteronomy 17.7, he says, The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall eliminate the evil from your midst. God has some strict rules, man, when it comes to tolerating this stuff in the church. And he says, man, we have to put people out. God calls churches and individuals to do this. And listen, that's what that means. It means that we excommunicate them. I borrow from Dr. Jack Arnold here. He says this. He says, excommunication does not mean a person is not a Christian. It means that we're treating them as if they are not. It means he's to be treated as though he weren't a Christian. No pope, I don't care, bishop, pastor, presbytery, congregation has the power to damn a soul as to remove anybody's salvation. We didn't give them salvation, and we can't take it away. God alone has the power to do that. But the church can put a wayward, professing Christian into Satan's kingdom for discipline. Excommunication involves an absolute loss of all Christian privileges. It does not put a person out of the invisible, universal church, but it does put them out of the visible, local church. Hopefully, the unrepentant Christian, while in Satan's realm, will find himself so miserable, sensing that he cannot live without the people of God, that he repents and turns back to the fellowship. If he does not repent, then what he does is he simply proves that he was never in Christ's kingdom and was really always in Satan's kingdom. He proves his Christian experience was superficial and there was absolutely no genuineness to his salvation. In short, he would prove then that he was never saved in the first place. Well, I can tell you that this stuff is very hard. I want you to know that there's another side of this because not only do we respond all these ways, Paul says there's one more way that we respond, and that was with reaffirming delight. There's very strong evidence that the offender in the Corinthian church repented this one and came back into fellowship with Christ and the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, we read these words. But if anyone has called sorrow, he has called sorrow not for me, but in some degree, not to say too much, for all of you. Sufficient for such a person is punishment which was imposed 
by the majority, so that on the other hand, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a person might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Most scholars believe that this is the same man who now has repented, and now the church has the other problem. Now they can't accept him once he's repented. We get this wrong on so many occasions, don't we? That's why we need the gospel. The discipline worked, but then the Corinthian church had a hard time forgiving the erring brother and letting him back into the church. The Corinthians went from one extreme to the other. Such is human nature filled with pride and spugness and prejudice and self-righteousness. But we also have to be ready to receive those who do repent. Amen? Did you know that there's an animal out there in nature called an ermine? It lives in the forests of North Europe and Asia. And something about this ermine is that in the winter, it grows this pure white coat. And it's completely, it's just beautiful. It's just glistening white. And it's so protective of that coat in the wintertime that it will not allow anything to get it dirty. So hunters found a way to catch this bad boy. The best way to capture it is to go to the entrance of where it lives. They dig these little holes in the ground, and they would go to the entrance, and they'll cover it with, like, oil and grease and grime and debris and dirt. And then they'll go find the ermine out as it's hunting, and they will let dogs loose on that ermine, and the ermine will go straight back to its home to go in for cover. But when it gets to the entrance of its home, now seeing that it's covered with dirt, grease, and grime and debris, it will stay there and be eaten by the dogs rather than lose its purity. That's how much purity means to that animal. It would rather die than become impure. How much does it mean to you, church? How much does your morality mean to you? How much does the morality and purity with your eyes mean? What have you been looking at? What have you been listening to? Where have your hands been touching? Where have your feet been going? What has your mind been thinking about? How much do you care about your purity? As the Bible says, purge it from among you. Unconfessed sin. Maybe you're not treating your sin like it's a big deal. Today, can I tell you that Jesus offers you forgiveness and restoration and hope? We must respond to immorality with real distress, redemptive discipline, and with renewed dignity. Oscar, if you guys would come. In 2017... A father was watching his two boys swim at Goat Rock Beach in California. As he was watching his two boys swim, the story that I read says that there was a current came. No one could really see the current because it was underneath all the other stuff. And one of his boys was six years old and the other one was just a little bit older. And the current came and it took those two boys out into the ocean. The older boy caught hold of what was happening, was able to get out and make it to the shore. But the younger boy was taken out into the ocean. The father, realizing what was happening, dove in. 
Father began to swim furiously to try to rescue his son who was way out now, but surely he was taken out as well. By this time, the lifeguards were in the water. When they got to the father, they realized that he was floating because he was dead. And the boy was so far out, he had already died as well. They went out and got his body, collected his body and the father's body, and they were back at the fire station doing some processing. And there was weeping, uncontrollable weeping. People were so grieving the loss of this father and this son. And the chief of the fire department just kind of came in, and he looked into the room, and he, he said this to somebody standing there. He said, it's the undertow that gets them every time. Can I tell you, church, it probably won't be the big wave of sexual immorality that takes this church down. It'll be all the little sins that are underneath the surface that'll take us when we aren't paying attention. Can I tell you today, being the pastor of this church, in the pastor of a lot of churches, I can tell you, it's the undertow in your life. The one you're not looking for, the one you're not paying attention about, the one you think you can handle on your own. You, you've done this, you're big enough, you can handle it. It's that one that'll take you out. It's the undertow of when you begin to play with morality and think it's no big deal. It'll take you every time. So how do we do with this? How do we deal with the undertow? First of all, I want you to know, as we do the book today, just avoid isolation. Sin thrives in hidden, dark places. Don't go at this thing alone. Stay transparent with what you're struggling with in the body of Christ. Bring all of your sin to the light by telling other people what you're dealing with. Secondly, act immediately. As that theologian once said, you got to nip it in the bud. Identify what the issue is and deal with it quickly. Did you know that apathy will put you on the path to death than most anything else? So act immediately. Today, if there's something in your life that you know that's right, listen to me. Burn it. Throw it. Unplug it. Dump it. Flush it. Block it. Run from it. Do something, but do it now. And the last thing is imply, apply integrity. I want you to know that there's a passage of Scripture that's deeply embedded in my heart. And I carry this in my house, and my children will know it. They will know it by what I do, because I have strong rules about my house. But maybe you could imply integrity and maybe make Psalm 101, verses 2 through 4, something you take to your house. David says in Psalm 101, he says, I will carefully attend to the blameless way. Carefully attend to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall leave me, and I will know no evil. That's what God's called us to. I wonder if you pray with me right now. 
Lord Jesus, I really don't know what you want to do and what you want to speak this morning, but Lord, I know, Lord, you're calling us to holiness. And I beg you today that your Holy Spirit would cleanse us and forgive us and renew us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you stay in your feet, we're going to sing. And as we sing, if you need to come to this altar to pray about anything, to give your life to Christ just like Izzy did or anything else, there will be some waiting for you. But let's sing and let's respond to God's grace.